Subspace is your network provider for real-time applications. Subspace uses their own global network and deeply intelligent routing algorithms to make sure your traffic takes the lowest latency path between two points with excellent jitter and drop performance when compared to the public internet. Accelerate your applications at get.subspace.com network, and we thank Subspace for being a sponsor. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. Welcome back to the Full Stack Journey podcast, where we talk about the ongoing evolution of the IT professional. I am your host, Scott Lowe. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen today or tonight or this morning, whatever the case may be for you. Uh, my goal with this show, as always, is to help equip and prepare listeners for their journey of learning across the full stack of technologies that we find present in today's data centers and cloud environments. Now, today's show is revisiting a topic that we have touched upon a couple of times over the course of the history of the show. We've had guests on like Lindsay Hill and Jason Edelman to talk about things like network automation. And I wanted to revisit the topic of network automation in this show. So given that, you know, we are part of the Packet Pushers Network and the Packet Pushers Network, well, I mean, networking is their thing, you know, the tagline where too much networking is never enough. I think I got that right. Um, if not, my guest for the show today, Ethan Banks, will gladly correct me if it's wrong. So, Ethan, how are you doing today? Scott, I'm doing uh, very, very well. Thank you for having me on the Full Stack Journey. Well, hey, I am super thrilled to have you here. Um, you know, normally I would give my guests an option to introduce themselves here. So, uh, you know, we do have a little bit of a different audience than perhaps folks who listen to the rest of the Packet Pushers Network. So, for those folks who maybe are not familiar with uh, you, why don't you take a minute and just kind of tell them who you are? Uh, Scott, I spent 20 odd years in the data center trenches, uh, building out different data center environments, going all the way back to the days of Novell and uh, Microsoft, Windows NT and so on, and uh, found a love of networking partway through that career and just kind of stuck with that and uh, did a bunch of certifications all the way up to CCIE at some point and uh, started a podcast back in 2010 that's turned into a living for me. And these days I do a little consulting, I do a little training and uh, do a lot of podcasting and writing and so forth on the Packet Pushers Podcast Network. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, I don't even remember the first time I got introduced to you and Greg through Packet Pushers. It's been a while, but I think it was Probably a few years into the podcast. I don't think it was as early as 2010. Yeah, we might have ran into each other at probably a Tech Field Day event or something like that. I don't know. I don't know. I think it was even maybe even before Tech Field Day, although Tech Field Day has been around for a while too. So. Yeah, could be. Yeah. But regardless, yeah. Anyway, great to have you on the show. I love, um, uh, you know, I think revisiting this topic of network automation, you are uh, a, certainly a great um, guest for that. You, you deeply steeped in the networking industry. You have your, your finger on all these different things that are happening. And so I think listeners will really find this discussion and kind of like, you know, the state of the state of, of network automation uh, useful. So um, I know it's been a few years. I look back through the archives of the show and it's, you know, it was always back at like in the early, you know, episode 20s. So yeah. uh, been a little while since we talked about network automation, you know, over the last couple of years, like what's changed? Like where, what's, what's, what are the big trends happening in networking and network automation right now? The big trend for me is that network automation, the demand for it has just gone up 
and up and up. It's like the hottest thing that companies are looking for skill-wise. It's the thing that uh, it's when we record podcasts about network automation and network automation products, they tend to be uh, the most popular um, those, and people are writing about it ferociously. Lots of people that are like, ah, I'm getting into Ansible and I learned this. Ah, I'm getting into Python and I learned this about things about how to automate their network. Uh, the growth is just uh, phenomenal. And, and I think there's a lot of reasons for that, that we can, we can see just as IT people, Scott, we know IT groups are being asked to do more with less. Headcount's always been a problem. That hasn't changed. It's still a problem. And those same people of which there are not enough have to do uh, a broader set of skills. Now they got to bring clouds, the big one. It seems like they got to, they got to bring cloud into the mix now for some definition of cloud and add that to their skills portfolio. Um, the network, it hasn't really done well with the whole infrastructure as code movement, just because the nature of what the network devices are and how they work. But we're, we've seen that change too, you know, in the last few years where there's more APIs now and there's more API first thinking coming from a few of the vendors and so on. And that's, I don't think that's driven because the network vendors wanted to support that. It's as much as you got to deliver network infrastructure rapidly, be able to do it error-free and be able to do it repeatably because you're integrating networking with the rest of the IT stack. So as... Uh, some IT infrastructure is being uh, delivered for purposes of applications. Networking can't be the the guys go, oh, we'll get there in a little bit. Give me two weeks, two months would be better if I could have two months. No, no, no. It's got to be done now. And so, again, automation is being called upon to make that happen. Uh, you know, and Scott, I, I think there's more, even more examples that we're seeing in the industry in the last couple of years. There's a company I'll, I'll focus on here for a second, Network to Code. You and I probably know a bunch of those guys that work there. Those folks have grown enormously with their engineering talent and project management and so on. Uh, why? Well, there's a lot of business demand for what they do and what they deliver. Uh, just, just huge. Um, the Cisco DevNet, if you look at that program, that program has grown enormously. Cisco's put tons of effort into DevNet and into uh, certifications around uh, the dev stuff that you can do with Cisco infrastructure now. When I ask my instructor friends and when I talk to various people in the Packet Pushers audience, what training are you looking for? Automation is up there. That's the kind of stuff they're looking for. And it's a little hard to come by because there is no like, this is the way you do automation, you know, exactly. It's it's a bit complicated. Okay, we talked about cloud a minute ago, Scott. So, well, how do you provision cloud, really? There's not a switch in front of you that you, you know, you hit the CLI interface and do the thing. I mean, yeah, there's CLI interfaces that are tied to cloud, but how do you actually normally do it? You use some kind of automation tooling typically to do that at scale. You can click around the UI, but I mean, people are using Terraform uh, very often to deliver cloud, including network stuff. And then one final point I'll make here, Scott, I haven't let you get a word in edgewise, but uh, but certifications, you look at some of the vendors, when a vendor puts a certification out, that is an indication of an enormous amount of effort, research, time, and so on to build training material, to build training partners, to get courses out there, to put books out there, to put exams together, and so on. Cisco's got the DevNet Associate and Professional uh, certifications that are all very automation uh, focused. Juniper, so two uh, certs at the same level, the JNCIA and JNCIS DevOps certifications. And of course, you look at a couple of the cloud folks, AWS, they've got their advanced 
networking specialty, and Google's got the professional cloud network engineer specialty. Now, we could you know, fuss about how network automation all of these certs are, but that is certainly a key focus of what's going on there, dealing with infrastructure as code. So, you know, it, to me, that's what's been going on the last few years. If it's been, you know, two, three, four years since you really thought much about network automation, it's a busy space, man. There's a lot going on. Yeah, it sounds like it. And I totally agree with your point about certifications, you know, having helped bootstrap some certifications in the past in various roles, there is an enormous amount of work that goes into, you know, starting up a certification program and, you know, coming up with uh, the exams, coming up with the training and doing the, uh, you know, the rubric around how it's all mm. going to be scored and all that kind of stuff. I mean, there's, there's a lot to it. And so, you know, no vendor is going to go into that lightly. If they're going to go into that, they're going to, they're going to see that there's a, there's, there's enough demand for that to justify it. And they, they want to capture a piece of that and show that their certification is the one that defines, you know, this particular space. One thing that, that jumped out to me, uh, and by the way, listeners, Network to Code is connected, among other people, to Jason Edelman, who was on an early episode mm. of, of Full Stack Journey. So um, totally agree seeing them everywhere. Um, but one thing that jumped out to me in your response, um, Ethan, was cloud, right? And, and this is something yep. that's been on my mind. I spend a lot of time focusing on cloudy topics, right? But it's been interesting to me to see the impact of cloud on the networking professional, because you're right, when it comes to provisioning cloud resources, it's not like provisioning, you know, your traditional sort of on-premises networking stuff, right? There is more involved there in terms of thinking about automation and thinking about that. Still lots of architecture and design required in a slightly different vein, but still, you know, and still still lots of value for network engineers there, but they do have to approach it in a different way, I think. Uh, and then understanding how the cloud folks want you to deliver these things, what these objects are, what their constraints and boundaries are versus what traditional networking is. And then once you've got that cloud network stood up, probably in an automated way, how to interact with the rest of your network, how to integrate that whole thing and make it function as one network. It is enormously complex. And from what the trends we're seeing now is that it's not everyone picking up their data centers and moving it all to cloud. Now we're done. We're going to live in the cloud forever. It's going to be this hybrid cloud forever seems to be what's going on because of cost models, economics, the practicality of it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. There are things that are going to make more sense for the foreseeable future to run on premises for a variety of reasons. We don't need to go down this of that rabbit hole, but the idea of, of you know, having a, a network that needs to span both on-premises resources and public cloud resources and public cloud resources across multiple clouds. Um, and again, we don't necessarily need to go down the multi-cloud rabbit hole, but um, you know, that, 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 that reality is there. And uh, there's a huge amount of value for network engineers there who traditionally focused on on-premises stuff, but now can expand their skill set. I mean, there's just, there's just an enormous lot of value. I, I point that out just because if you're a listener and you're listening and you're like, Hey, I'm a network engineer, you know, the, the cloud does not replace or eliminate your role. It changes your role a little bit um, and adds some new things that you need to grab a hold of. But that, that value of being able to design this infrastructure that will span these various components of a company's overall, you know, uh, estate is still incredibly important. I believe. So um, lots of demand for it, which, which is good. That's good for folks who are investing in that. You know, you mentioned, you know, like new things coming online, some things, you know, still not happening as much. Um, thinking about those things that are, you know, sort of progressing well, what are the things that are progressing? Like where, where is the industry making good progress in terms of providing tools and frameworks and that sort of thing for network automation? There's a lot of categories here. It's not like network automation is this one thing. It is a discipline that we find applied in a lot of different areas. And 
what we're seeing is a lot of these areas being more readily consumable now, whereas maybe two, three years ago, they're pretty rough around the edges or kind of limited in functionality or, uh, you know, narrow in scope. We're seeing things that are much more mature now. So let's, let's get into some of the examples. So commercial tools. And some of these are companies that have been sponsors on packet pushers, for example. Um, Itential, uh, Glueware, uh, Net, I think they pronounce it Net, Net Ice, but NetYCE, uh, Anuda Networks, Abstra, I think Anuda and Abstra are both owned by Juniper at this point. And there's other ones. These are all tools. They don't all do the same thing. They live in the world of orchestration, or maybe you could say automation, uh, or maybe you could say service catalogs, but they're tooling that deals with the network as a system and provisions something for you, does something in some way for you. And again, different capabilities, different focuses, different markets that each of these tools might go for. And I, I hardly gave you a comprehensive list. But as you look at these tools now, what we're seeing is a great deal of maturity in what they can do. There's multi-vendor support there very often. And it takes away you having to understand every nuance of every platform that you're managing. You build a policy, and then this tool as an automation platform will take your policy and make sure that the that what you're trying to get done is configured on the various devices. I'm really generalizing a lot of, of necessity. Um, but another piece of this here is not just as it talk to these network devices for you, and uh, automate some of that configuration. But it's also going to interact with some other system you probably have in-house, like, like ServiceNow. That's a, a one that comes up a lot because a lot of shops are running ServiceNow. And these this tool that talks to the network devices for you will also interact with uh, ServiceNow and kind of give you this cohesive you know, IT management system. And so that's that's come a long, come a long way in uh, in recent years. And there's so many of these commercial tools that are out there. I, I gave a few vendors just because I'm familiar with them because they uh, have been packet pusher sponsors or someone that I've interacted with, with historically. Uh, so if we go um, maybe more specific, Scott, we think about it this way. Another place that network automation is making a lot of headway is what I would call the fully virtualized data center. So think like uh, what what you can build with Equinix, and I forget the product name. There's, I think the term metal is in there somewhere, but the, it's the idea that you can, from a web page, say, I need a virtual router and a virtual firewall and whatever it is, stitch them together and make it make just make it appear, rather than I'm going to Cisco and I'm going to spec this piece of hardware and I'm going to get it in a box and then I'm going to put it in a rack and make it do the thing. Now, you can make a get a virtual one stood up in a colo that supports it and have it up in minutes. And I, I interviewed a guy on a Packet Pushers podcast earlier this year on one of the heavy networking episodes. And his whole thing was, I don't have time for hardware. It's got to be NFV, Network uh, Functions Virtualization. And again, that's another thing that's come a long way. He's like, that's the only way to do it. I am going to programmatically hit the API, build the thing I need for whatever it is. And when I'm done with it, I'm going to tear it down and put it away. Rather than, I again, I, bought, I took it out of the box, I racked it, and it's there for the next 10 years, and I've got to use it to depreciate that asset. People don't think like that now if they are on the automation train. And again, more and more of these capabilities are coming for, so you can build a virtualized data center. Same thing with a virtualized WAN. So there's a company called Packet Fabric. What, what, what can you do with those guys? You can say, hey, Packet Fabric, give me a link from here to there. 
all software, all from the web, boom, the link gets stood up and you you pay them for it. As opposed to, I'm going to call my carrier, hey, Verizon, hey, AT&T, hey, Telstra, build me the thing. Okay, well, that'll be months before we can <laughs> get to you and provision the circuit and all of that stuff. No, you call Packet Fabric and just you know, do it. And it's all automatic. It'll, it'll get stood up for you very quickly. Now, that I mean, there's a catch here, Scott, in that you got to be where they are, right? It, sure, sure. If you're doing everything on premises, it's, you know, they probably don't have anything in your particular building out there in the middle of the cornfield. But uh, but if you are where they are, you can really take advantage of these services. And stuff that took weeks and months can be done in in minutes. It's a pretty pretty great stuff where uh, where this has progressed to. And it's not just that we've gotten there; it is so market driven. It's like you just once you get there, you want that. That's what you want. I don't want to call someone and order the thing. I want it to click, click, pay for it, done, you know, and have it go. When you can do that as a business, then you as an IT group can go back to the business and say, we need to do what? Yeah, I can have that done. And here's what it's going to cost because the pricing's right there in front of you. And you know exactly what your OPEX is going to be. Uh, to be able to deliver what used to be incredibly complex services that required a lot of architecture and design and hand-wringing to get all the sign-offs to make it go is almost trivial now. And automation is making all of that happen. So that you know, these are areas where things have progressed the most. Um, there's other point solutions, Scott, like SD-WAN. Software-defined WAN is basically network automation. It is very fancy routing that you don't have to configure beyond policy, uh, generally speaking. I'm, I'm, I'm making it a little simpler than it is. But for the most part, you put the policy in, you say, this is how I want to forward certain classes of traffic, and the magic happens under the hood. It's all been automated for you used to be you'd take some uh, routing protocol or special routing protocol and do stupid CCIE tricks to make the routing do fancy things. And it was just super hard and unreliable and you hated it. SD-WAN, all that goes away. It's somewhat magical. Uh, service chaining is kind of similar. And a lot of times that piggybacks off of SD-WAN where you're shipping traffic from on-prem to cloud, but you need to inspect it along the way and you don't want to have a firewall in-house to do it. One of your options would be ship it to Zscaler and you can stitch that right in from your SD-WAN controller if it supports that integration with Zscaler. And it's, to me, that is a form of automation, things that used to be super hard or complex, or I got to stand up GRE tunnels and route traffic this way, and I'm going to put in a, a PBR policy. You don't have to do a lot of that stuff anymore. It's just kind of done for you in the GUI. Uh, now I can speak to something, or at least mention something, and maybe you got commentary here, would be, would be Kubernetes. Because I look at Kubernetes and go, that is network automation writ large. Everything just happens. It happens in a very specific way. You got some uh, add-ons like Calico or whatever that can change how the networking is done, but basically it's automated and you don't even have a choice about it. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely correct there. When you start talking about things like Kubernetes, you know, the, I won't say the network's an afterthought, but the network, the network exists to serve the application. They're basically kind of taking it, you know, opposite of the way that people have looked at it in the past, right? And, you know, you build up the network and then you're like, oh, what applications are we going to run? And instead it's like, what applications we're running? Yeah, we need to do the network connectivity. So let's do that when we instantiate, you know? And so, yeah, network connectivity, network policy, rules, um, you know, all that kind of stuff is all configured on the fly as you instantiate and grow and scale applications. So 
I, I could definitely see that, you know, as a, as a form of automation. Interesting, you mentioned the Equinix offering. It also makes me think about AWS Outposts, mm. right? Where they're taking, you know, racks of, of infrastructure and sticking it, you know, potentially in your data center, right? And you're getting, you know, a VPC and mm-hmm. some subnets and your own little, you know, local availability zone right there. And, yep. um, and, and bringing that, that form of automation that AWS uses, you know, down into your environment. Um, it seems like another example. So that's, these are all great examples of, of where it's going on. Um, we'll take that and we'll sort of turn it on, on its head then, you know, like where is the industry not doing so well? Like where, where, <laughs> where, what areas have not progressed well, right? So, and, and, and yeah, you know, I mean, this could be a long list, but let, let's just hit the highlights. Well, th- right? There's some context here before we get into the, this part of the conversation. And the context is, I think automation has become a tool that the vendors are using more than the end consumer is using. We're using an automated service more than we are automating our own networks is kind of how I feel about it. Now, some you, we could argue about that. There's definitely uh, ways that uh, we could have different perspectives on what that really means. But I think the folks that have made the most of network automation are vendors that have built products on top of automated network infrastructure, where that's part of the product and the service that they are using because they can monetize that. So I'm going to, I'm going to put on my, you know, evil vendor hat here and say, uh, how would I, you know, if I was to make, make the most money out of automation, do that. I'd build products on top of it. I wouldn't necessarily focus on enabling my end users to do automation. Although there's lots of that going on too. Don't get me wrong. You know, again, Cisco with the DevNet program, for example, that's a big part of what that's all about and Juniper with their DevOps stuff and so on. Um, so I give that context to, to, to set up our conversation about where have we prog- progressed the least in network automation. And one way is uh, standardized APIs, as in there, there is no standardized API. That's not a thing in the network automation world, because why would there be? Well, the answer to why would there be is because there are lots and lots and lots of industry standard models that describe networking in a structured way. Yang, that's that's the the, the those Yang models exist. They're out there, and I think we're, we're probably well beyond hundreds and into thousands of models that describe everything from what an interface looks like to how you do BGP routing. Well, in theory, you could take that model, Yang. If you read through a, a Yang descriptor, it's very highly structured, and you can see all the components in it. And gosh, it looks like the exact kind of a thing you'd build a standardized API against for a particular function. And that isn't a thing. There's lots of APIs that exist that are based on Yang models, but it's not something that the vendors have all gotten together. So that if I'm configuring a Juniper MX router or some kind of a Cisco box running, I don't know, iOS XR, let's say, that it's the same thing. No, those are not the same things. Um, now, there are some common um, APIs and, and Yang models that are supported. I'm not saying that there's, there's no commonality there at all, but vendors don't really want that. They want to stay differentiated, and they really want you in their ecosystem, uh, seems to be the, the play. Uh, and so... That's a bummer to me. I had hoped, I had really hoped uh, that, you know, my my beautiful uh, lollipop field where I'm riding the unicorn and there's rainbows was you write one script or write one process that hits uh, an API that's common across multi-vendor devices and it just works. And we're never going to get that. Um, we're going to yeah. maybe, you know, at best it'll be limited. 
We interrupt the podcast to discuss network acceleration with sponsor Subspace. The Subspace product set is pretty straightforward. They are all about getting your traffic from one place to another via the fastest possible route, faster than the internet would do it. Now you might be thinking, the internet's not slow, so what's going on here that I'm going to get excited about Subspace? Network nerds might know a little about the complex decision process BGP goes through to select the packet forwarding path through the global internet. One of the key metrics in BGP path selection is AS path. The lower the number of autonomous systems in the path, the more likely that path is to be selected. But that doesn't mean BGP is choosing the fastest path, and that's where subspace comes in. Subspace has its own global network and runs its own routing algorithm to be sure that your traffic is getting from point A to point B via the fastest path possible. And if you have applications where latency matters, you really, really care about this. Any latency you can shed will improve the user experience for your real-time applications. What do we mean by real-time applications? Voice and video applications, including SIP, applications like gaming, fintech, transportation, database synchronization. In my network engineering career, I've had to support fintech, voice, video, and database sync over transcontinental distances, and latency was the enemy I've always had to work around. Right, subspace, they can't change the laws of physics, but they can give you real-time apps an edge with what they describe as a faster internet. Subspace promises to improve not just latency, but also loss and jitter, another enemy of real-time applications. Because if the packets don't show up on time or at all, they just don't matter and the user misses out. Subspace is developer-friendly with a full API and inline DDoS mitigation that keeps the app running, even in the face of the bad guys doing bad guy things. And Subspace makes it easy to get started. There's a free tier of their global IP proxy accelerator product that lets you test if Subspace is right for your application. There are several other products designed for specific use cases you can explore, and many of those have pay-as-you-go pricing. To get started, visit get.subspace.com slash network. That's get.subspace.com slash network. And if you do rock up on their doorstep, do me a favor. Would you tell them you heard about them on the Packet Pushers podcast network? Thanks a lot for doing that. And our thanks to Subspace for being a sponsor. I do want to just comment really quickly. Like, you know, the idea of standardized APIs, you know, yeah, it, it would be an awesome sort of thing if it did happen. But I think in, in, if we're all honest with ourselves, we know it won't, um, you know, because differentiation, right. Yeah. And, and to a certain extent, like I, I kind of get it, you know, we don't even have to go all the way to the evil vendor part, but just like, <laughs> Hey, I'm, I'm vendor X and I have, you know, some unique functionality that my router or switch or whatever does. And I want to be able to expose that, mm. you know, and, uh, and, and then that, by definition, then means that the API has to be extended and there has to be changes. And then, you know, this kind of things work. And in some cases, if they were going to go to standardized APIs, it's almost like having to go back to least common denominator in some ways, right? And, and that's a legitimate so, argument. Yeah. You know, that, that really is a legitimate argument. That, that's a thing. Um, different of these chipsets have different capabilities that are exposed. Different vendors have built a platform because of specific customer needs, and they don't want to lose that, you know, uniqueness that they built in to... Um, really make themselves stand out. That That is legit. I still want my standard API, but, um, and I, I agree, even if it is like with SNMP MIBs, you got, you know, MIB2 that does all the common things, and then you've got the private enterprise MIBs that have all the specialized things. I'd be even okay with that. You know, if I could just have uh, some standard stuff that runs the same across everywhere else. But anyway, we haven't made much progress there. I don't think we're going to make much progress there. 
Uh, I'm not sure at this point how excited the network world is about Yang models anyway. Um, there was a lot of fervor about it. The IETF had their Yang doctors for all the RFCs that was going on, but I haven't heard much talk or writing about it lately. It seems to have tailed off a bit. One of those things, maybe I'll, maybe I'll poke a few of the bears that I know in this area and, and see what they have to say. Well, Scott, another area that uh, vendors have progressed the least, but also the most, uh, actually, is their own ecosystems. And so here's what I mean by that. In some cases, the vendors have these diverse product sets that they probably gained through acquisition. They have their own core stuff, and then they bought some other company to get whatever. And, and depending on the vendor, sometimes they've done great putting these systems together. So this diverse set of products work together and feel like a unified system. And there's some sort of policy engine that sits on top and, and, and helps you deliver policy to all these different components, the access points of the firewalls and the switches and the routers and so on. So it feels like one thing. Uh, a Cisco DNA is an example um, where there are certain components within the Cisco world that fit into a Cisco DNA system. And from I, I have not deployed a Cisco DNA system myself, but some of my friends who I respect that have done that say, yeah, Cisco's doing pretty good work here uh, in that area. So there's progress there. But then there's others that it's like, they don't look at all together as at all. They can't even get the GUIs to look the same. You know, they can't even, you know, wallpaper the web page to look right, let alone, you know, have them actually be be functional. Um, they, they're under the same brand, but uh, that, that's about all you can really say about that. So that's a, that's a most and least sort of a thing where you really need to talk to the vendor if it's important to you to have all their stuff work together. And put it through a hard test in the lab and find out if you can deliver whatever the business services you're trying to deliver through that infrastructure in that automated, orchestrated way uh, that works the way you want it to. Um, it's it's such a roll of the dice, Scott. It just is. Yeah, I, I mean, I get it. Like, you know, I mean, we could we could go on the same about software companies. I mean, mm -hmm. who, you know, like... Yes, some of their assets were acquired and then have different origins in the code base. But like, even then, you know, you end up with one tool, one dashboard that looks one way and another tool with another dashboard that is just completely different, right? mm. <laughs> different UI frameworks and different controls and all the rest of it. So, yeah, I, I totally, totally get that. Um, uh, so what else? Another area we've progressed the least is um, is really on on us as practitioners and owners of networks, network operators, and that is in network standardization. So uh, people that have listened to enough Packet Pusher shows have heard me on this particular rant, but my idea here is that if you're going to automate a network, that network should be standardized. That is, it should be predictable. You should be building it in a modular way where everything's same, same, and so on. And I believe that carries not only within your network, but you should be able to go to some other company's network and it looks the same. I think as an industry, the networking uh, industry, we're ripe for standardization where you can look at a reference and say, you need to build a wireless access layer for a campus. This, this is how this should look. And you can draw that out and have it look that way. Why would I care about this? From the standpoint of automation, when you have a scoped, defined reference uh, network that you are running automation against, you've eliminated a lot of the corner cases and the weird stuff and so on. You can make a few assumptions safely if your network is compliant with a particular 
standardized approach to build that thing. But that's not how we build networks. Networks are as much art as they are, you know, some kind of a reference. And, and I guess that's true across the IT stack, honestly, because we're working from our own experience. We're working with what we've been trained on. We're working with technical debt, baggage that we've been handed. And we are, in fairness, working with businesses that do have some unique-ish uh, requirements. But probably the requirements are all the same, but the constraints they put, maybe their budget constraints, drive you to a different solution than you would have otherwise chosen uh, otherwise. So yeah, I, I get that, but I, I don't feel that we've made much effort to to standardize networks. But the more you get into automation, you know, one of the, the things that you run into is getting that same, same perspective, the, the compliance notion. I need these devices that are in this class, routers, let's say, to all have these configuration parameters, whatever they are, they have to have all of these things. Okay. And when you're going to automate that and you're going to make that look the same, that gives you a certain predictability to the device that you know how to manage it in a predictable way. And it's just, there's <laughs> too many people I've talked to where it's just like, I can't do that because my business is a snowflake or, you know, whatever the reasons are. And um, I, I agree that it's hard. But I also point to several networks that I've parachuted into is kind of like a firefighter and whip that network into shape because you can do it. You can get your head around it, decide exactly what the standard should be for this thing and make it look that way. You can at least do that much within your own network and get, get that network to a place where it is much more easily automatable because of the predictability of it and not you have far fewer exceptions and corner cases that you're trying to account for in your automation processes. But I just don't feel like we've made that turn yet. Not as an industry. There's no such thing as like a generally agreed upon standard of how we build networks, nor internally have we prioritized it quite enough until people get deeply into automation to get bit by these corner cases and oddities that uh, that mess up their scripts and make it more difficult to write effective tests and uh, you know and so on. So that that's a that's a hobby horse of mine, Scott. No, oh, that's okay. I mean, I, I, I certainly hear where you're coming from. I would question, as a, as a non-network professional, I would question whether it's even possible. And, and, I, and, I'll, and I'll quantify that a little bit. Like, I could see us standardizing within a time frame, like within a scoped period of time, right? But then, then you just have, you have organic change that you simply can't control. You've, you've uh, gone for consistency, you know, same, same in terms of a particular vendor, and that vendor goes out of business. Mm -hmm. Or they discontinue the product line. Or they change the product line with a new improved model that now behaves differently. And, um, and, and sometimes this organic change is something that you, you, you can't even account for maybe in your standardization. I could be wrong, you know, but it just seems like over time that would be nigh impossible. There is a lot of that. And I, I admit that my rant is, is as much a rant as it is a practical thing, but, but I'll, I'll put it to you this way with enough foresight, you can build a network design that will scale and be replicable and modular, like snapping together Lego bricks. Okay, oh, I need this Lego brick that's, you know, this wide by this wide, this color, and I put it here and it solves that problem. As opposed to every solution you put in place being a snowflake and, and being so fragile that one change means it just upset your whole topology and you got to kind of rethink the whole thing. You can get out in front of that so you can stick with 
a standardized approach. And a lot of folks just don't do that. Now, your argument about, you know, the vendor's not there anymore. Yeah, that stuff happens for sure. And, and, and it is what it is. What are you going to do, right? You're not just going to rip out all the old vendor stuff because they went out of business yesterday and drop in new stuff unless your business has got so much cash that, woohoo, that's not a problem. I mean, everybody's got that problem. I, I get that. I get that. So so admittedly, this rant is, a, is, is coming from an idealistic, almost naive perspective. I do know better, but I still like to preach this. Well, I know. I mean, I, I think, I think th- this is one of those things where the value is in the journey, not in the destination. What I mean there is striving for standardization even if we never achieve it, has benefits in and of itself. And that goes back to your point about we can get ahead of things by in, in the design of the network by accounting for things like resiliency and modularity and that kind of stuff. Even if we never actually reach that, you know, that holy grail of ultimate standardization, the very fact that we have pursued it brings value and, mm. and allows us to address some of these snowflakey concerns with certain parts of the architecture. Yeah, for sure. Sure, I'll, I'll give you that. All right, one more hobby horse I want to get up on uh, in the context of what areas have progressed the least is about uh, AI and ML, uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning. It's still really pushed a lot in um, you know in marketing circles, and I think what we are actually seeing the more we we poke at these different terms like AI ops and uh, this is AI driven and so on. What they really mean is statistical analysis. It's not particularly complex. There may or may not even be machine learning going on. You know, the idea is machine learning, you take, give it a bunch of data and uh, come up with some patterns that are learned and known, and then you can apply an artificial intelligence algorithm to that data set. I don't think we see that in reality very often in commercial products. There's a lot of talk about either we're getting there or yes, this is AI. And then you dig in and find out it's really a statistical thing, et cetera. So I don't, I don't hold a lot of sway with it. The whole AI ops idea is that eventually artificial intelligence is going to see things happening on the network and then be able to react to them automatically and do something for you, fix something, change something on the network. And there's nothing I've seen that had convinced me I'm going to turn over control of whatever to, um, uh, to this artificial intelligence algorithm accomplishing anything for me. In a sense... Part of that is driven by, hey, if I've designed my network well anyway, and I use things that are built into routing protocols like BGP and OSPF, well, the kind of problems I very often need to deal with are handled by a routing protocol anyway. So what exactly am I going to be solving with, with artificial intelligence? You know, so from a networking perspective, I, I can make that argument. Now, when we get into security, I think maybe it's a little different because... I think there's a different kind of data set there and a different kind of predictive ability with the data that's flowing through ML and then handed off to AI from a security perspective where maybe there's more value there. On the networking side, I'm just, no one's showing it to me yet uh, and, and really impressed me here. And it feels like I'm having the same conversation over and over again for years now where it's like, it's AI, it's ML, you dig in and it, it kind of isn't. Now, I do have some hope in this area, Scott, where... There are some cloud-based services now where you and you know a thousand other businesses are leveraging this cloud service. We're all agreeing to anonymously share data with the cloud service that's doing whatever it is we've asked them to do for us. And in that data analysis of our data alongside of everyone else that's using the services data, you can get global insights into things that maybe you wouldn't have seen before coming out of your own data. 
and there's a benefit there. Now, how does that tie to automation? Well, it could be that there is sort of the wisdom of crowds. You know, you've got all this data coming in from all these different people that are using the same service you are, and there's maybe a, a knowledge about something happening on the network that maybe doesn't affect you now, but it's going to, and a, a policy could be implemented to get you ready for whatever that event is. I mean, I'm speaking abstractly, but uh, that is really interesting to me. And there's more and more services that are doing something like this. Uh, Cisco's got their cross-work por uh, portfolio of products, and some of them uh, play in this space. Uh, Kentic uh, is another. They do a lot of data analysis more on the service provider space. They, they play in this world as well, where there's a possibility of aggregate data being very interesting to all consumers of the service, where AI and ML may truly come to bear. But by and large, be skeptical if someone, some salesperson sitting in front of you talking AI, ML, and, you know, woo, and how exciting it is. Yeah, probably not. Make them get specific and to, before you decide to be impressed. I'm skeptical when a salesperson sits in front of me anyway, so I didn't even mention <laughs> AI or ML. Fair enough. <laughs> and I expect when I'm sitting in front of somebody trying to sell them something, that I want them to be skeptical of me too and make me prove it. Um, you know, the the one thing that jumped out about that, that um, you know, hobby horse or that last piece, if you will, is is I agree with your assessment with regards to the use of uh, machine learning yep. in networking versus security, right? Yeah. Because, you know, I won't say that people are unpredictable, but people are unpredictable. And when you're dealing with security, you're dealing, I think, more so with people than you are with on, on, on sort of the pure networking side, right? Mm -hmm. Pure networking side, you're dealing with largely well understood implementations and algorithms, routing protocols, you know, uh, link layer protocols, et cetera, et cetera. And these things, they, they largely behave the way that you designed them to behave for the way that yeah. people who designed them, you know, right? Um, but it's when a person gets involved and they are trying to get around something, you know, whether it is for malicious intent or just because I'm trying to get my job done and I'm getting blocked somewhere along the way or whatever, right? That's where I think having the ability to do something a little more, uh, you know, whatever, uh, greater use of AI, ML, probably makes more sense. Mm -hmm. So, um, all right. So nearing the end of our conversation real quick, before we wrap up, give me three or four sort of tools or frameworks that as a network engineer, if, if I'm not already at least familiar with these, I need to be familiar with, what would be your top three or four? Um, this is actually a difficult question because there is no right answer here, but I think for people that are trying to make their lives easier in a, in a simple way, maybe they're not ready to take over the entirety of the network and automate the whole thing. Cause if you think you're going to start that way, it's going to be, you're going to have a long weekend. Uh, <laughs> you pick a, pick a few things that you can automate some repeatable tasks and what tools would you use to do that? Python, tons of libraries. It's a programming language. Don't be scared. It's easy. Just get down to the basics. Make an API call, handle a JSON payload coming back to you, and then do something with that structured data that comes back in. It is honestly straightforward. There's a million tutorials about how to do that, and you can have that going in, in an hour. Um, you, it'll, be, it'll take you more time to figure out what the API call is and how the data is formatted coming back to you than it will be to write the code itself. It, it is genuinely straightforward. And you don't have to be making changes on the network. You just go ask the network questions. And then you take the data and you print a report and you, you raise an alarm or, you know, something like that. So you're not, there's no risk there. And it's a lot faster to have Python iterate through a list of 10 devices that you need to check the status of a route in the routing table on or something. 
than it is to go in one by one at the CLI and pull all that data out. It's it's worth the effort to uh, to learn that. So so Python's just so useful, and there's a lot of libraries that take the hard work of coding out for you because the library is really just an abstraction of someone else's code made easy to use. Tons of libraries out there that uh, could make your life easy. So that that's that's number one. It's low hanging fruit to me. Um, I'm going to lump a second recommendation here, Scott, as um, the two kind of top, oh, configuration management um, tools here, Ansible and then Terraform. Ansible's been pretty popular in network circles, lots of support for it, lots of vendors there support, and then Terraform, less supported on the network side for like network devices, but certainly for cloud stuff, that's uh, that, that seems to be the winner. Um, then... Uh, one more, Scott, I guess I'll give you is uh, something to do with version control, where you're not managing configurations and text files that live on a server somewhere. You're using something like GitHub. That's the, the big one, of course, or GitLab, increasingly popular. So people seem to like GitLab as well. Learn how to use uh, those resources so that you're thinking a little bit more like a developer where you've got version control. And you can begin to do things like not manage your configuration of a device as a whole, but standardized chunks of configuration. This is what NTP should look like for this sort of a, a device. This is what uh, uh, my OSPF paragraph should look like for this sort of a device and so on. You need to get familiar with checking code in, checking code out, um, and using those tools. And it takes some time. Git is, I still struggle with Git trying to make it do all the things that I want it to do. I'm increasingly comfortable with it because I actually use it more for Python than anything else, but it takes a while to get your head around. Uh, yeah, that is definitely true of Git. No doubt about that. <laughs> so, but, but don't, don't listeners, don't be frightened off. Like there's, there's a subset of like eight or 10 commands that will get you like 97% of what you need to do. And, and it's when you get outside of those little bitty corner cases, then 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 you worry. But but for the most part, it's safe. Well, plus you've got things like VS Code that are somewhat integrated with Git, and I, I use something called um, oh, what is my tool? A PyCharm Py, uh, by uh, JetBrains. There, that's a Python IDE. It's not a freebie, but it's tightly integrated with Git as well. Where once you've got it configured, which takes a while, you can just press a button, and the code gets all uploaded and synced and uh, checked in. It's uh, pretty great. Yeah, yeah. So there's and there's graphical tools, uh, you know, aside from PyCharm, there's Git clients that you can get for, you know, Mac OS, Windows, Linux, whatever. So, you know, yeah, listeners, don't be frightened off by all the talk about Git. It, it can be problematic, but by and large, majority of what you need to do is straightforward. Tools will help you. Um, I agree with the, the configuration management infrastructure code stuff. Um, it does seem to be a bit of a bifurcation with Ansible more for network devices, Terraform more as this declarative tool that you see more in cloud. Um, and, and of course, the idea of using Python, you know, to, to do automatic. I, I really, really love that you called out even just the read-only use cases, right? People yeah. have these, these grandiose dreams of what they need with network automation. And if, if all you need to do is just like, hey, I need to verify that, you know, I've got NTP set for, you know, for compliance purposes or, or whatever. Like the ability to go and query that and do it on however many devices there are on your network, that's gold. There's, uh, a, there's a video, Scott, on the Packet Pushers YouTube channel where uh, John Capobianco, who's kind of a mad scientist doing a lot of stuff with automation, this is all read-only. He uh, queries the network, gets the network state is down, pulls that status back as text, converts that text to speech, and then does a call 
through some vo VoIP service, and he actually, in the video, rings my phone, and the error message is read to me over the phone, completely automated, all through scripting, just an example, and it was nice. all read-only, everything that he did. It's a little bit, you know, kitschy or gimmicky, I guess, but it really illustrates what you can do with read-only and the power of it. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, you know, like, a big part of people's jobs is just gathering information and reporting information. And if you cannot simplify that part of your job by doing some automation, then that frees you up to do sort of higher value things, you know, looking at where you can increase the resilience of the network or where you can increase, you know, connectivity or security requirements or whatever the case may be. So there's lots of stuff. All right, wrapping up, give me one recommendation as a closing thought. What would you tell listeners? Get in the lab and break stuff. Almost all of this stuff you can do in a lab with zero risk to you. Go in there, make things happen, break things. And, uh, and, and all of a sudden, what the usefulness of it will come into focus. Yeah, that's fantastic advice. Thank, thank you, Ethan. And, and keep in mind, folks, like, uh, you know, there's lots of ways to, to build out the lab. You don't have to have a giant rack full of physical switches. There's virtual instances of a lot of this stuff that runs. Yep. You could, you know, if it's cloud stuff, there are free tiers for the major providers that you can go out and use and, and get some experience with that. So there's ways that you can do this at no cost or at very little cost. Um, and certainly at no risk, you don't have to do this. Don't do this on production network. That's why we said lab. So. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. Uh, Ethan, as we wrap up, just tell folks where they can find you on the interwebs. EthanCBanks.com is my hub site. You can figure out everything from there. If you just want a quick Twitter handle at ECBanks and then of course, PacketPushers.net and at PacketPushers. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much, Ethan, for being on the show. Great, great conversation. I think lots of useful information shared for the listeners. Uh, listeners, once again, thank you for uh, joining. Uh, we appreciate you taking your time to listen to the Full Stack Journey podcast. I am your host, Scott. Um, you can reach me on Twitter at Scott underscore low. You can also hit the podcast directly at FSJ podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Give us feedback. Uh, if you have the time, throw us a review up on iTunes or elsewhere. It helps us reach other uh, listeners. So thanks so much. Have a great morning, afternoon, or evening. Mm -hmm.